Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-437 of the Run Run Live podcast. Today's theme is journeys. I connected with Ricky Gates and we had an interesting discussion around his journeys, particularly his run across America. This particular journey wasn't about getting the miles in per se, it was about discovering the heart of the country and and finding himself a bit in the process. And that's the gift that we get from our endurance sports practices, my friends. Every time we lace up those shoes, every time we leave the house, it's a microcosm of the great journey. It's a small version of that unsettled quest we homo sapiens have always had. Not only to find what's on the other side of the next hill, but What's on the other side of our known limits? In section one, I talk about the nuances of doing tempo training, tempo work, in the trails. And in section two, I wrote another installment of the Old Man Apocalypse story because my friend Tim asked me to. And this one is going to be a three-parter, so this is the first part of a three-parter. I've had a decent couple of weeks of training. We got through the hot part of the summer up here, and now we're rapidly approaching the autumn and fall. Uh, after we last spoke, I spent a weekend down at my house on Cape Cod, and I had a pretty big weekend down there in my training. Friday, I had a long tempo run, and I, I had hoped to get it done earlier in the day, but by the time I got the podcast out and I drove down, it was late afternoon, and I did not feel like going out for a hard, hot, long workout. And I was mad because I packed up my water pack and my bottles, and then I forgot to put the whole kit in my truck because I was in a rush. It's so hot and humid and dry on the Cape, with way less tree cover, and you really need your hydration equipment with you. You need that option. So I just grabbed some random store-bought bottles of water, and I figured I'd give it a try and see how it felt anyhow, right? You just got to get out there. So I took Ollie, and we set off across the street into the state park, 
that apparently no one really knows about. It's sectioned up by dirt roads and has a couple of ponds. And I discovered it while mountain biking a couple years back and was a bit astonished to realize there was a state park a half a mile from my door that I had been running past for years. And a dirt road on the Cape is not a normal dirt road. On the Cape, that's a sand road. The whole place is one big sand dune. So I've discovered a loop in this park that circumnavigates one of the small ponds. And it's conveniently about a mile stem time from my door to the pond loop. About, you know, a short mile on single path through the scrub oak and the blueberries around the pond. So for tempo, I can just go out and run this loop. And when the time is up, I jog home. And it ends up being a mile there and a mile back. And then I do the tempo around the pond. And that's what I did Friday night. And even though I felt shitty and discombobulated going in, as soon as I got out there, once I warmed up, I felt pretty strong. And Ollie and I got into a rhythm, and we ran the workout with a reasonable amount of aplomb. And then the next day, Saturday, I had a three-hour bike ride on the schedule. And I wasn't quite sure how I was going to do that without my water pack. You know, you burn a lot of water in the sun on the Cape when you're out for that long. So I managed to find a random trade show backpack in my truck, and I loaded that up with a few bottles of water and some food. And I made it all the way up from Harwich, where I am, up the rail trail, to the end, at the beach, in Wellfleet, where they had a nice uh, great white shark-like community booth set up to warn you about the sharks. I didn't go in the water. I turned around, came back, got my three hours. So that was pretty good. There were a lot of people on the trail, a lot of tourists. I talked to some people who who were wearing Pan Mass Challenge shirts, and apparently that was a virtual event this year as well. It was Sunday that really had me worried. It was going to be the hottest day, and I had a three-hour run on the schedule. And the only way I could figure out how to do it safely was to go out early and do three one-hour out-and-backs. So I started the first leg before or around 7 a.m., and I headed out on the roads over to the rail trail and took it east. And even at that time of day, it was hot, especially in the full sun on the bike trail, just hot. And there weren't many people out yet, mostly serious bikers. You could tell they're getting their workouts in before the family woke up, before the crowd showed up. And by the time I got back to the house, I was soaked, like I had been swimming. My bottle was well past empty. But it was a solid logistical plan, because when I got back to the house, I drank my fill, ate some fruit, changed my shirt, headed back out. And this time, I took the roads east towards Pleasant Bay and the ocean over by Chatham. And I made it down to the ocean and down to the beach, and I looked around a bit and then turned around and headed back to the house to refuel again. And the last loop, I decided to head back into the state park with Ollie because he was just mental that I was going out and coming back and not taking him. So I figured the park would be easier on me. I could get Ollie out. I can get some shade. Now, to get there, I have to cross a busy road and then right across the street into an unassuming side road with no signage or anything. If you didn't look at the map, you'd have no idea there was a state park squeezed in there. 
And Ollie was so amped up that he was just dragging me on the leash. So as soon as the road turned into sand, I let him off. I was too tired at that point to fight him. And watching him take off up that dry sand road was like one of those Roadrunner cartoons where all you see is the churning legs and a, and a line of dust behind him. So, uh, yeah, he's hilarious. We explored the park for an hour or so, and I ended up finishing with 18 and a half hot miles. Ollie was happy, and I was relieved to be done. And then the next weekend, uh, last weekend, I headed up to the Wapak again to do the north half with my buddy Paul. We dropped a car at the windblown parking area and started at the northern trailhead on the other side of Pacman Adnock. And it was a nice, cool morning. We ran the 12 miles back in a casual three hours, three hour and 20 minutes, something like that. And you may say, that's really slow. But this is all technical mountain running. And we weren't in any hurry. It was uh, it was a good, good outing, a good journey. And if you look around, you'll see journeys everywhere. All you need for a journey is a goal or a destination. And journeys can be physical or spiritual or both. The ancient Egyptian kings thought of life and death as one big journey. The years started, they counted from the time the king took the throne. And when he died, he journeyed to the west to become one with the god Amun-Ra. And the scribes painted nice detailed maps on the inside of the coffin lid so the kings wouldn't get lost. And the Greeks and the Romans had Sharon, the ferryman, to take them across the river Styx to the afterworld of Hades. The Christians had the Pilgrim's Progress and Dante's Inferno. Each of these things was a version of how to make life's journey in such a way as to make it to whatever version of heaven. Now, think about the Odyssey, right? Homer's Odyssey, with our hero, Odysseus, journeying home through mostly self-inflicted challenges, and the 20th century modernist version that James Joyce penned about our friend Mr. Leopold Bloom on one peripatetic day in Dublin, or Conrad's journey into the heart of darkness, wonderfully reimagined by Coppola in Apocalypse Now. And I know at this point, you're saying, wait, 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 I'm throwing a lot at you, but I linked all these references in the show notes in the post, so you, if you're interested, you can go click on them. But my point, whether it's Huck Finn on the river, or Jack Kerouac on the road, the Western canon is filled with physical, metaphorical, and spiritual journeys. And that says something about us. That highlights the deep correlation between our wanderlust and our redemption, our striving, and our enlightenment. And the questions we ask every day are about where are we in the journey and what's the destination. So where are we? Where are you? On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. All right, maybe I should have called this the heart of darkness, but into the tempo, how to work with effort instead of pace on the trails. I had a few long tempo runs this week, and since I am training for a trail race, I did these tempo runs on the trails, 
which brings up some interesting nuances in how to execute these workouts. So when I was gunning hard for my Boston qualifying times, I did most of my speed and tempo work on the track. It was a known environment, a controlled environment, where I could practice exact paces and times without having to worry about things like surface conditions. I'd strap my fast shoes on, and I'd run those laps hard at specific paces. It was and is a simple way to beat yourself into strength and speed for a race. But as you get more experience, you can you can move these workouts out onto the road. Most races are going to be on the road, and you can simulate race course conditions by doing your speed and tempo out on the road. But believe it or not, one of the reasons we did our speed and tempo on the track in the old days is that GPS sports watches did not exist. Yes, they didn't. We had sports watches that we could count the laps on, but there was no way to program a workout into them and no way to know how far you'd gone unless you drove the course ahead of time and marked the distances. But today, miracle of miracles, we have those sports watches. And I love being able to program a tempo workout into my watch and head out onto the roads. You know, let's take something like a step-up run where I'll warm up for 20 minutes run in zone three for 30 minutes, run in zone four for 30 minutes, and then cool down for 10. That's a great workout on the road that allows me to practice in the real-to-life crucible of rolling hills around my house. I've also, as I get older, I've been running by effort instead of pace. I've been doing this for a while now. The only time I'll use pace is if I'm close to a target road race and need to do some, some pace work specifically near race pace. Otherwise, I use effort. And heart rate is a proxy for effort that my watch measures. But what do you do for this tempo work in the trails, especially in the kind of trails where I am? How do you translate that long tempo run into something that gives you the benefit of the tempo, but also the foot feel and the leg strength that you'll need for a long trail run or a trail race? So it turns out you can use the same effort-based workout programs and just lift and shift them to the trails with a couple of adjustments. But backing up, when we say technical, we mean a combination of trail width, surface conditions, and elevation. At the easy end of this would be, let's say, a six-foot-wide gravel rail trail or dirt road with negligible elevation change. At the hard end would be single path through slippery, boulder-strewn rock gardens at 20% grade. While your heart rate is certainly going to go up trying to navigate that rock garden, you're not going to be able to keep a good cadence or any form. Effort-wise, you could generally keep your effort up, but it probably isn't going to give you the tempo workout that you were looking for. What I have figured out is that the tempo is better served in the trails if you adjust your course to something that doesn't have as much vertical and the surface condition is reasonably runnable. Case in point, that loop that I found down in Cape Cod around the pond, it's got some elevation gain, but for the most part, it's just single path around a pond. I found another loop 
down by the pond by my house on my normal home running loop in the woods, that's probably a half a mile, this loop, half a mile long, a little bit less, and it fits this need as well. And on this loop, I've got basically four sections, if you think about four sides of a loop. The first section is a reasonably tranquil, slightly downhill, you know, nice wide section. And it's a section where I can stretch out a bit and relax back into my form and recover. It's got roots, it's got rocks, but there's enough of a line of sight that I can plot a safe course through without having to radically adjust my stride. The next section is a shorter section that is single path, twisty turny, with rock gardens, high roots, stone walls, a bit of a fisherman's walk along the side of the pond. And I have to slow down a bit in here and high step the obstacles. Now, after this section, it dumps me out onto a wide, rough dirt road with a slight uphill where I can push a bit after the cramp picking through the single path. And then this turns hard 90 degrees onto another section of rough dirt road that's slightly uphill where I can focus on pushing my form in anticipation of getting back on that first slightly downhill tranquil bit to recover into the next loop. So I can run my tempo here without having to break too much and without any gnarly climbing or descending. And at the same time, I'm getting a great leg workout in addition to the sustained tempo effort and building my trail chops, so to speak. So pace is a hard measure in these kind of conditions. You probably don't want to anyhow because you'll be depressed that you're two minutes miles slower than your road race pace. Pace doesn't matter for trail tempo. For trail tempo, you can run by effort. For tempo runs, if you're not slicing it too finely, you've got three levels of effort. Heart rate zone two is your aerobic warm-up and cool-down pace. Everybody is different. Work with a coach to find your own heart rate zones. Zone three is where you start to get into the tempo pace. A low zone three effort is what you probably do when you're out running with your friends on a fun run. Low zone three, you can still talk full sentences. You don't notice the effort. High zone three is where the tempo starts, right? So that's the second bit. So you have your zone two, then your high zone three. The tempo starts. And you start having to take a few breaths every couple of words if you're talking, and you notice the effort. Now, this, this effort is not too hard, and you can hold it for a long time, but you notice that you're having to work. Now, zone four and above, that's your race effort. You're breathing hard, you're working hard, you're moving your feet. You have to squeeze your words out between those heavy breaths, and you really have to focus on maintaining that form and that turnover. And in the example I gave above, an hour and 30-minute tempo, tempo run, I'll jog zone two out towards the pond loop. When the workout clock hits 20 minutes, I ease into that high zone three effort for 30 minutes running the loop. And when the clock strikes tempo, I hit that zone four effort for 30 minutes. That's a decent workout. And I'll typically spin out of the loop a little bit early with under 10 minutes of tempo left and that high, that zone four tempo left and finish the tempo running back up the ridge towards home. And this way I'm capping that long tempo section with five to seven minutes of uphill grind 
And this is fine at the end because I know it's going to end in less than 10 minutes. I can really push at the end coming up over that ridge. And that gives me about a 10-minute jog home. In the trails, especially when the surface conditions get gnarly, if you want to keep your tempo effort, you focus on cadence. Pace doesn't matter. Keep your form clean and churn those legs. So your focus is on churning those legs. Your stride's going to shorten, but your turnover speeds up as you navigate the hard bits. As you can stretch out when you move into those recovery sections, and you start to learn the rhythm of the loop, the rhythm of the trail, and you learn how to plan and execute a nice tight line through any obstacles to save energy and keep the effort and the cadence. And you will see a natural heart rate creep over the course of one of these long tempo runs, right? You'll see your heart rate creep up. And you'll see your cadence pick up in the data as well. And that's a stout workout. It gives you both the conditioning benefit of a long tempo run and the specificity of navigating some technical trails. So in the trails, that 20, 30, 30, 10 tempo workout is going to fetch me about, you know, nine point something miles. Whereas on the roads, that same workout will give me 14 plus miles. And that's the pace difference. So in conclusion, yes, you can move your tempo training into the technical trails. It takes some learning. I find it works better if the trails are technical but still runnable. And your mileage, of course, may vary. At the very least, if you're a trail enthusiast, it's fun and it's a challenging thing to try. You can mix it up and do some trail tempo. Probably won't kill you. And now for today's featured interview. Ricky Gates, give us the 200 words or less on uh, who you are and what you do and, and why we're talking here. I want to talk to you about your adventure. Yeah. So my name is Ricky Gates. I'm from Colorado. Got into running as a youngster, freshman in high school, and uh, I've had a 25-year-long career with running that spanned uh, racing, traveling, and then more recently, project-based runs that have included running across the country. That was in 2017, and then 2018, running every single street in San Francisco. And now I'm living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I'm taking on that project as well. I've got other projects up my sleeve, but uh, yeah, that's the quick lowdown. I got your book, the uh, coffee table book there about your run across America in 2017. And I had read some of your pieces before that came out of that journey. Uh, so I thought that was super interesting stuff on a bunch of different levels. So I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about that adventure. Tell us a little bit about what you did there, the overview. Totally. So 2017, uh, I packed up a uh, my car, actually, it was my little sister's car who lives in Africa, and the car had been sitting for a while at my mom's place, and she was ready to say goodbye to it. Packed it up and drove it to South Carolina, sold it on Craigslist for $1,000, and started a five-month overland crossing of the United States from South Carolina to San Francisco, 3,700 miles through, I believe, 12 or 13 different states about 1,000 miles on trail, about 2,300 miles on road, and 300 miles on a stand-up paddleboard going down the Tennessee River to get across Alabama. I kind of did this uh, as a way to get to know my own country a bit better, especially during a time of divisive politics and bubble 
social uh, settings where we don't necessarily talk to our neighbors quite as much as we used to. So that was kind of the premise of the the journey was to get to know uh, my country better. Yep, and you're an accomplished ultra runner. So this wasn't outside of your graphs per se. It was sort of in line with what you do. But you would come to a point in your life where you're starting to get a little bit older, right? And I have some troubles uh, in your relationship. And, and like you said, the country was in a bit of an uproar and said, you know, this is a good time to go out and take a journey and reset, right? Totally. Yeah, reset. And so much of our information uh, these days is fed to us through various forms of media, whether that be uh, social media or mass media. And I just really wanted to understand this and to get to know this on a a face-to-face manner. And as I say in the book, at the pace of one step uh, at a time. And uh, I found it to be highly effective. During my run, I anticipated talking about politics quite a lot. And the truth is, is that I really didn't talk about politics all that much, uh, which during other times, perhaps not exactly right now, our conversation of politics doesn't dominate all conversation. It's more what you're doing today, who are you hanging out with, what makes you happy, what makes you sad, uh, all of these things rather than uh, who are you voting for and identity politics and all of these things. So it was meant to be a, a learning experience, and it absolutely was. What did you learn about the country, about the people you met? You know, what was what are the top things that you learned there? Well, certainly, the I mean, the number one thing that I learned, and this is something that I had suspected beforehand, but it was good to get firsthand knowledge of it and to be reminded of it is we're kind of being fed a narrative right now that we're 90% different and 10% the same. And uh, while I was out there, I learned and reified that uh, we're 90% the same and 10% different, that our, our media and our politics can take that 10% difference and amplify it so much to the benefit of of politicians, to the benefit of media. So what I found is that that 10% is what is being used, uh, not necessarily for good. And it's that 90% that we really need to focus on in order to bring ourselves back together again. Yeah. And I think people are people. I've traveled a lot internationally and around the country. People are people. They all care and worry about the same things for the most part. And I think that's been true over the span of time as well, right? Absolutely. And uh, like you said, most of the differences are stuff we made up to uh, for some reason. The other thing I find interesting is you're out interacting with people in the South as well, right? So in, in some uh, rural areas, and you're basically walking out of the woods with a backpack, not having showered in 30 days, right? You're looking like... Uh, <laughs> somebody who crawled out from underneath a rock. How did those conversations start? And how did they get from people not being terrified of you to getting these actual personal connections that you got? Well, Chris, it's funny. I very early on in this trip realized that, uh, and I I took to calling it a costume because I think in part, that's in large part what it was that uh, really broke that barrier. I was wearing this costume of short shorts and in a dirty shirt and what became a a pretty long beard, at least for me. And they were borderline visible stink lines coming off of me. You can walk into a gas station in exactly looking how I was looking and people look at you and know that you're doing something different, that you're not from there, that you're going through something, that you look relatively uh, 
unthreatening. I mean, with a backpack that weighs 12 pounds, it's pretty hard to hide any sort of lethal weapon in there. And people are just curious. So it was like a large part of the job of getting to know strangers was being done for me just with my mere presence walking into a place. And so I really didn't have to make much of an effort at all to have these conversations with complete strangers. What, to be honest, what was hard and has been hard ever since then is no longer having that costume and still wanting to have those interactions. And so to go into a a gas station now where I'm just another guy and to try and strike up a conversation with a total stranger, it's just not easy. That's all of us, especially right now. Yeah. So the Forrest Gump outfit gave you the sort of the foil to start that conversation. So what's the over-under on the number of times somebody called you Forrest Gump? Is that more than 4,000 or less? Uh, I would say, yeah, on the run across it was, uh, and since then it's it's got to be 100, 200 uh, yeah. references. Yeah. Uh, initially it was something uh, that kind of annoyed me. Like that's the only sort of reference that people have to someone running across the country is this fictional character from a movie from the 1990s. And then I let the annoyance kind of dissipate because, uh, I mean, if that's people's reference, then just go with it. I'm like, oh yeah, Forrest Gump. Okay. (laughs) And like you said, you did this unsupported, right? So you basically abandoned your car, dipped your toes in the Atlantic Ocean, turned around and started running. And totally. And that's hard because there's some real both metaphorically and uh, and actual deserts between you and the West Coast. Um, and if you're unsupported, things can get pretty grim. But you're basically living on Slim Jims and, and uh, Mountain Dew from gas stations, right? So and talk about what, uh, you know, the sort of into the wild moment you had in these runs where things were getting pretty grim. Well, I can say two things about that. The first thing is that uh, a lot of people think that unsupported is way harder than supported. And the few moments that I had out there when I did have uh, support, a person filming me from time to time uh, for about three weeks total during the trip. And I certainly believe you me, had him carry some of my gear because I was going to meet him every mile or a few miles. People think that it's easier to do something like this supported, but the huge challenge with that is that rather than being constantly present, which is for me the goal of a trip like that, you're pretty regularly looking at your phone or answering your phone or trying to keep to a schedule just in order to keep up and be informed with this other person out there, which took quite a bit away from the trip. So if I were to do it a second time, I would do it uh, unsupported again because I enjoyed the freedom of leaving a gas station, going 10 minutes down the road and sitting down after sitting down for 15 minutes, realizing that I want a nap and laying down and taking a nap for half an hour. When you're supported, uh, you have this obligation to uh, keep that person informed and, and possibly feel like you need to keep moving when in reality, your body is telling you to, to stop and relax for a second. Then the second part of that is that uh, I knew from the beginning that my trip was going to be public. It was going to be visible both during my run. And I did have this goal of writing a book about this journey after the run. And so I wanted to put it out there, not just as a recountance of my own journey, but as something that 
people can look at and consider taking on themselves. And the reality of putting a trip together like that with support is that it costs a lot of money and a lot of logistics. If you're looking at doing the trip supported, even doing it quickly, you're, you're probably looking at $20,000. And then if you're doing it a bit slower, it's going to be more than that. So I set a pretty strict budget for myself of $5,000 for the five months that I was out there. It's really the cheapest way to do it is to do it self-supported. Um, and I did it. Yeah. And I think that uh, the distance that I was covering on a daily basis isn't mind blowing. It was 25 to 35 miles a day, which to a lay person seems like a lot of miles, but remove most of your social obligations and, and your work obligations and 25 to 35 miles a day is actually really quite attainable by most people. Yeah, because you're not hustling. You're just going at a comfortable pace. There's a lot of hiking and you rest when you need to rest and you break it up, right? That's exactly right. Yep. I'm fascinated by this across the country thing. I'm going to have to do this at some point in my life before I die. But yeah. when you talk about learning about yourself and doing this for yourself, you know, being away from the phone, being disconnected. The people I've talked to who have gone across the country, they describe this effect where after a while, everything just sort of slows down, right? You're in a different world with a different time scale as you're running every day, right? It's, it's sort of this interesting way your mind starts to adjust to the journey. Did you get that? Totally. Never in my life have I ever experienced being so present as I was during that run across the country. Just everything about it. You become so aware of your surroundings to the extent that you almost don't even know how aware you have become of your surroundings until, until the journey ends. And then you're uh, back in a bed and back in uh, kind of quote unquote normal situations and normal social situations. So yeah, it's, it's really an incredible thing. Yeah. So you got a lot of good stories out of this as well. You've got the book itself, which is sort of a coffee table book with a lot of photos, but you got a lot of good stories. And like the story, I think it was in, maybe it was in Runner's World. I don't remember, but one of the magazines about the guy with the crazy squirrel and the dogs in the trailer home that you uh, spent the night with. That was a great story. And meeting the guy who, who owns uh, large frying pans, right? I know where that place is. Yeah. So you got some good stories out of this as well. Yeah, totally. It was an everyday thing. And somehow or another, it, those amazing people and amazing stories, for whatever reason, uh, they always seem to happen, to pop up, to occur really when I needed them most. The Lodge cast iron guy in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, uh, Bob Kellerman. I pulled up onto his dock while I was stand up paddle boarding after a night in the rain and drying out my sleeping bag and, and just really kind of needing uh, a good quiet, special moment. And the owner of this private dock pulls up in his Mercedes Benz. And I'm like, oh, great, here we go again. And he had read about me in a newspaper from a couple days earlier and, and says, hey, you're that skinny boy running to San Francisco, aren't you? And I'm like, yes, sir. And uh, he's like, I'm buying you lunch. You know, come on with me. <laughs> and he tried, he tried to give me some money. I turned him down and he's like, I respect that doing it on your own. I said, yes, sir. And then later on, another story that you're, you just referred to Kevin Wilson in Oklahoma. Again, I, it seems like all of these happen after a really long night in the rain. This guy uh, offered me a bed in his place 
not the most glamorous of accommodations, but there was a roof over my head and, and a really friendly person that was just kind of giving me his life story. And yeah, it almost brings tears to my eyes right now, just kind of thinking about it three years later, how special that moment was that the, this person shared with me. So it's, it really all just comes back to putting yourself out there in a vulnerable situation and people seeing that and wanting to take you in and to give you comfort. And, and also on their part, maybe to share the journey a little bit, to, to be a part of it a little bit. Right. And I, and I think the crucible of the journey when you're in it pres- provides a sort of a focusing lens on those encounters. So they really impact you more. Totally. And uh, they impact me more. And I think they impact that person more as well. I got to thinking about it uh, during my run. I, I've gone out and uh, sought out people that are running across the country. One person is Pete Kostalnik, uh, who set the record uh, going across the country a few years ago. I met up with him about eight months before I started my trip, and I drove two hours down to run with him for five miles and then drove two hours back. It's, uh, I guess the way I think about it is like, if you have a chance to see this very rare, wild animal, you you just have to go take a little journey and follow that GPS track, then people take it. And and that's kind of what you become during this journey is you become this uh, very rare wild creature and and people want to see it and they want to interact with it somehow. And it's empowering to others. And and I can only say that because I've not only been that wild animal, but I've been the the person that that seeks out that that wild animal as well. Yeah, yeah. Chukacabra. So the yeah the uh, I, I was I was thinking more mountain lion, but uh, more but more uh, unicorn. Yeah, yeah, yeah unicorn. <laughs> yeah, chupacabras are scary. <laughs> so so I also noticed there was a lot of beer associated with these stories. Is that on purpose, or it just turned out that way? Beer? Yeah. You run thirty miles across the desert and tell me you're thinking of anything other than a cold beer. Um, <laughs> I don't know. There's a, you have to reward yourselves with all these little things. And for the most part, you can count on uh, getting a cold beer at a gas station uh, pretty much anywhere across the country. And it's a good source of hydration as well. Calories. Yeah. So when you left your this person, when you showed up at the other end, your this other person, what was the change? The change, I mean, some of it is what I've mentioned, just this... Uh, you just kind of become way more present. And I refer to this in, in the book as well, just how I think you look back through our written human history and you've got a bunch of these uh, different uh, references to people going out into the desert and really finding themselves. And you, know, you can look at the Bible and see Jesus going across the desert for 40 days. You see it in Forrest Gump. But that's where he uh, kind of comes to terms with a lot of his issues that he's going on, that he has going on in his life. And so it's, yeah, just immense amount of self-understanding and learning how to be present in a quietness and an emptiness and inside you. And Oftentimes we think of emptiness as a negative, but uh, certainly from a Buddhist standpoint, uh, emptiness is is really what you're aiming for. That's your version of nirvana, is that there's there's no thought, there's no, it's just feeling, just being present. And with that said, it's not a permanent state either. It's, it's something that uh, really only exists at that level, at that moment, if you want it to continue on in the rest of your life. Uh, just like everything else, just like running, just like writing, you really have to keep practicing it and being aware and paying attention. Mm. So it's a practice in the true sense. 
absolutely. Yeah, I see what you're saying because, you know, some people will run a marathon and find that transformation, right? Some people will run a hundred miler and find that that journey and that transformation. It's another version of the same thing. Yeah, and I would also say that it's, uh, you know, in terms of running and specifically with marathons and races like that, I think that you can find that emptiness, that awareness during a, a race, a short race, really intensely for a moment, a long race, a little bit less intensely for longer moments. I guess I'm saying uh, it's important to know that it takes practice and to know that this level that you're getting to is through a certain means, specifically in this case, it's through running. And for many of us, well, for all of us, really, I mean, none of us uh, are immortal. That means can be taken away from you at any point in your life. You grow old and you can't run. You get injured and you can't run. For me, personally, moving on with my life, I still try to strive for that with running, but I also look for it through different means. And for me, Specifically, that's through meditation. And that's been probably the biggest lesson that I've learned over the past few years is, is that we can attain that same thing and we should try to strive to attain that same thing, but in a way that is not necessarily harmful to our body. And yeah, for sustainable. Me, that's, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's that's sustainable, exactly. And, and, yeah. and for me and for everybody, really, you can strive for that uh, simply by sitting still with your eyes closed and paying attention to the sensations in your body. Okay, that's awesome. That's great. Learned a lot from this. I love it. Actually, a couple of things before we move to the exit. First is, uh, for your average Joe 5K runner, what's the version of this journey that they can do? Well, uh, funny you should ask. that. I've got a couple different ones uh, that uh, I've experimented with myself and that I've put out there more or less as a challenge to other people, uh, not immediately, but uh, about eight months after my run across the country, I was in living in San Francisco where I'd lived off and on for about six years. And much like not knowing the United States quite as well as I thought I did, I wanted to test myself to see if I knew San Francisco as well as I thought I did. And so I set out to run every single street in the entire city, which was a distance of about 1,300 miles. There's 1,100 miles of street. And then with inherent lack of efficiency, it ended up an additional uh, about 17%. So it's about a 1,300-mile journey to yeah. see the entire city. And lo and behold, I would say that I really only knew about 10 or 15% of the city through that journey. And, and so I put that out there. And that was two and a half years ago, coming up on three years ago. And and there are now, I'd say, three or 400 people doing in every single street project in their perspective cities all around the world, which is really cool to see and, and right. seeing their reflections on it and just how similar their reflections are to my own uh, of a completely different city. And then uh, kind of a shorter version of that, uh, admittedly, I put this out there as a promotion from my book. I called it the cross-county challenge rather than cross-country challenge. Um, the cross-county challenge encourages you to find a map of your county in the States. We all live in counties uh, around the world, whatever that might be, uh, shires in, in England or prefectures or whatever they might be in other places. But to, to look at this place that's bigger than your town, smaller than your state, and figure out a way to get across it. Because I think the diversities that we can find around the country, we can actually find within our own counties. And to do 
a big day or a couple big days to traverse the area in which you live can be really revealing. Yeah, no, it's true. You'll find stuff that you had been driving by for years. Absolutely. Yep. And, and blinking at. So did you ever get a, a film out of this journey a couple of years ago? Totally. So that's going to be coming out in the next couple months. The film is going to be called Transamericana. Every still shot that I have in the book, there's a motion shot that'll be in the movie. And it's 75 minutes long, made by the Wandering Fever, a film production company out of South Africa that's done a lot of the films for Solomon and Solomon TV. I don't need to tell you this. It's not exactly the best time in uh, film history to be releasing a film right now. So this is going to be going straight to internet, much like a lot of films these are these days. But I am really excited to have it come out. And the goal is to get it out before the November election, not to necessarily sway the election one way or the other, but simply to get people to think about uh, their neighbors and, and try to kind of pop these bubbles that we're living in a little bit, and experience some sort of empathy even if that's just through somebody else's journey across the country. So I believe the film's meant to come out in mid-September sometime. So stay tuned for that. Yeah. Uh, Solomon's going to be uh, behind that 100%. And I guess I'm biased, but I, I'm really happy with how the film turned out. And I think uh, not just the running community, but a broader community as well will be too. All right. Awesome. So send me all the links for all your stuff and I'll put them in. But where can people find you, find your books, find all the stuff? I'm lucky that there's an E in my first uh, because I managed to get uh, all of the managed to get the, the handles for my name, rickygates.com, R-I-C-K-E-Y-G-A-T-E-S. And then uh, Chronicle Books is the uh, publisher of the book. It can be found there or wherever you get your books, Amazon or Ask your local bookstore, and, and if, they're, if they're not carrying it, they can order it. Stay tuned for the Transamericana movie coming out in mid-September. Solomon.com or Solomon TV is going to be the best way to find that. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. All right. I'll let you get back to work. Get back on your motorcycle and uh, make sure you send me all those links and stuff. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. We'll, we'll uh, chat again. All right. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. After the Apocalypse, City of the Dead. The old man crouched next to a dented and dust-covered car. He braced one hand on top of the flattened tire and peered cautiously over the hood. The long street was crowded with trash, a few recognizable pieces here and there, but mostly just a churn of waste packaging, the final legacy of the consumer packaged goods industry. He knew that within a couple years, everything would be under a layer of dust and dirt, and within a couple decades, there would be nothing visible except lumps in the underbrush of a new forest tangle. Maybe in a couple thousand years, some archaeologist would peer down at this sidewalk with the enthusiasm of a Lincolnshire farmer uncovering a Roman mosaic in his potato field. The earth abides. There was a slight ruffle in the dry grass as a breeze passed. It was an overcast day with low gray clouds, and the breeze brought with it 
the burnt industrial smell of charred plastic. Ugh, that smell. The mix of rot and decay and burnt petrochemicals. It left an acidic tang in the back of his throat. Here and there were lumps of clothing or bone that might mark the final resting place of some unlucky Homo sapiens. Maybe the virus, maybe starvation, or maybe just the bad luck of this dead world with its dead cities had caught up to them in that particular spot. Greasy stains spread out from the bundles on the asphalt as the forces of decomposition and vermin rendered them down into their composite compounds. A life well lived? Who knows? Ashes to ashes and a stain on the pavement. He hated these cities, these cities of the dead. On the trails and the back roads, he could pretend the apocalypse had never happened, that he was just vagabonding like he always had. But here, the apocalypse was up front and personal, and it left an awful taste in your mouth and dripped down from your sinuses into the back of your throat and permeated your clothes. But today they chose to come here. They needed supplies that only the old world could provide. They had made the journey through the burnt-out suburbs into the industrial port to see what they could find. There was a loud crinkling of plastic close by that made him flinch, and he turned to see Brad sitting on the pavement, resting his back against the car, fishing into a plastic dog treat bag and popping a handful of jerky-like treats into his mouth. Bill the dog watched him in an intensely insulted fashion. "'What are you doing?' the old man hissed. "'Having a snack,' Bradley shrugged around a mouthful of jerky treats." Keep it quiet. That smoke could be fresh. There may be someone here. We're trying to get in and out without any trouble, and we can't do that with you making noise. And you're making the dog crazy. We need him to focus. Put that crap away. It's not crap, Brad stated in a hurt way. It's salmon-flavored smoked jerky. Keeps my energy up. He resealed the bag and stuffed it into his pack. Bill the dog looked disappointed. It's dog food. The old man gave him a hard look. He was probably that kid that would eat anything on a dare. He was a big kid, probably 6'5", bushy reddish beard, surrounded an off-centered smile. He seemed to somehow still be pudgy in this apocalypse and carried himself in a good-natured slouch through life. Brad countered, If I gave you a Slim Jim, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Probably came out of the same machine and just went off into different bags. Whatever, the old man waved him silent and gestured with his chin down the road. The distribution center you used to work at should be in this industrial park off to the right? Yeah, last building. These are all DCs through here. They slouched low along a chain-link fence around to the loading dock. Trucks and vans were still parked where they had been left at the end of the day when this was just a bad flu and nobody knew it was the apocalypse. Joe the van driver put the van in park, took the keys back to the office, went home with the sniffles, and now was another grease stain on the sidewalk. Yet somehow this bouncy man-child of a fork truck driver managed to ride out the storm. They paused 
at the corner of a van and surveyed the loading docks. How did you get into the building when you worked here? Did you go through the front or the back? That door, next to the dock, Brad pointed. We swiped in there. I still have my keycard, he reached for his wallet. The old man shook his head. God protects idiots and drunkards. We're going to find some beer? Brad brightened. No, I'm saying that I don't think the keycard system is going to be functional with the power off for almost two years. Oh, yeah. Eventually, they were able to jimmy a door open. The good news was that no alarm systems worked anymore either. Brad went into his routine from when he used to guide facility tours, clearing his throat officiously and straightening up a bit as he peered into the gloom of the interior. So, this is the Packaging and Distribution Center number two for V-Define Pharmaceuticals. Out this side, we see the final product being palletized and loaded onto trucks. He waved a gesturing hand towards the inside of the loading docks in the dim light. Back there are the packaging lines that put the product into bottles, boxes, and blister packs. And on the other side, the raw materials come in through receiving and run through the mixing and pelletization lines to make the tablets. He paused, breaking character. Strange to be in here when it's so quiet and dark. Okay, Brad, nice work. Let's let's leave the door open a bit to let some light in and go see what we can find. Now, the first priority is anything that looks like antibiotics, although from what you're saying, I don't think they had those here. Second is anything that looks nutritionally valuable, like vitamins or protein powder. And finally, whatever else vaguely medicinal we can find. So let's let's load up and get out of here. They clicked on their flashlights and went to work. The old man had his rechargeable headlamp from his trail running days that really helped in these situations, and they left Bill to watch the door. Hey, keep an eye out for batteries, too. You remember a supply cabinet somewhere? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll take a run through the offices, Brad said. I didn't spend much time over there, but I'll see what I can find. Hey, how do I figure out what these are? The old man gestured to a large bin full of tablets. I look for a piece of paper or a label on the bin. The work order should have the item identifier and description on it. The old man fished a printed form out of the bin and illuminated it with his headlamp. Can, can you read this? What's it say? Brad slouched over and leaned in and sounded out the lettering. Sildenafil. Not sure what that's good for. The old man guffawed. What? Brad asked. Dick pills, the old man laughed. <laughs> Not sure what these are good for in the apocalypse. But he stuffed a handful into a plastic baggie and slid them into a side pocket in his shorts. They filled their packs with enough random vitamins and protein bars to kill an Olympic weightlifter. Nothing out of the ordinary, but potentially useful back at the camp. This stuff wasn't being made anymore, and they figured that they should get what they could while they could. The distribution center had survived fairly well in the long months. There were signs of a leaking roof and evidence of some animals starting to move in. It wouldn't take too many more months for the cracks to turn into holes and the drips to turn into streams. In a couple decades, it would all just be another lump in the forest. Until then... They would find a way to take 
what they could from the old world to build the new. Brad emerged smiling with a bottle of something from the manager's office and a handful of batteries. And then they heard two growls. The first was Bill, sounding a warning from the docks, and the second was the approach of motors. Shit! The old man was in motion towards the dock door. It was too late. The motor sounds grew louder, and it sounded like a pack of motorcycles making a circuit of the park. The old man and Brad pulled Bill back from the door and into the shadows of the dock, waiting for the danger to arrive or pass. We should be okay. They can't know we're in there. We'll wait for them to pass, and we'll make a break for it, the old man hissed, his confidence being given away by the tension in his bony body. Brad nodded. The motorcycles rounded the facility and progressed through the parking lot. At first they seemed to be going right on through, but then there was the sound of a horn, and they slowed and circled. Ah, they've seen the Jimmy door, the old man warned. We can go out the front or hide, Brad offered. No, I think we have to face the music. The old man looked around, assessing the situation and playing out probabilities. Quick, stash the packs in these totes and let's get Bill hidden. What are we going to do? Brad asked. Fortune favors the bold, the old man winked. Follow my lead. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, we have journeyed through the long gauntlet of episode 4-437 of the Run Run Live podcast and ended our quest in the afterworld of delight, so to speak. My personal journey is going well. I'm healthy. I'm in good enough shape to manage the 42 miles of the WAPAC on the 7th. I've got Eric and Dave Foss and Dwayne Hespel joining me. It will probably take us around 12 hours or so, I'm figuring, because when I race the 18-mile version uh, of this, it takes me about four hours. So if you slow that down and extend it out to 42 miles, it's about nine and a half hours. And I figure we're taking our time, we're enjoying ourselves, 12 hours should be a good, good benchmark. But you never know in a long run like that, right? You can get lost, someone can have a, a rough patch, you never know. And as part of that run, I'll be doing 26.21 of those miles for the 2020 Boston Marathon, virtually. Everyone's uh, least favorite word these days, I think, is virtual. Supposedly, the BAA is sending out some sort of race kit for us to use in our virtual. We'll see. And the answer is Candide. Yeah. Remember the quote I was trying to find for my History of Agriculture article in the last show? Well, no sooner did I hit the publish button than did our friend Keating Vogel pop back with the answer. He knew right away what I was trying to remember. It was not Camus, nor was it Sophocles. It was Candide by Voltaire that ended with the admonishment to tend your garden. That's what I was reading on that airplane so many years ago. Now, I know that makes me sound super nerdy and pedantic, that I was riding around in airplanes in my 20s reading the classics for fun. In my defense, you could buy those old paperbacks of the classics for less than 25 cents at the time. I had a lot of plane time, and I hunted the book piles for bargains. 
You could always find the classics cheap because teachers would force school kids to read this stuff, and then the kids would throw them away as soon as they could. And I had to look up Candide because for the life of me, I couldn't remember what it was about other than those closing lines. So it didn't make much of an impression on me at the time. I was probably, you know, I was probably reading it while elbow deep in complimentary cocktails, but apparently it's a satire about French institutions like the church, the government, the nobility. But guess what Candide was doing in this novel? He's on a journey, a journey to self-discovery. So there you go. It all comes back around. Now, to finish up our journey here today, I'll give you the happy update on my virtual race across Tennessee. As of this morning, 8.23 Sunday, I am sitting at 623.5 miles. Now, this was supposed to be a 1,000-kilometer race, but I guess in Tennessee they use different math because I need to get to 635 miles to get my buckle. After today... Uh, today's run, I'll be at somewhere around 630 miles, and I'm guessing I'll finish up on Tuesday. And if I look back at the months, I ran 182 miles in May, then took a week off in June and got behind with only 124 miles. Then I bounced back with a stout 185 miles in the heat of July, and will end up with about the same in August. And I'm okay with that, given I'm only running four days a week. So what did we learn on this journey? Well, I think people learn that it looks way easier to keep up with a five and a half mile a day average than it actually is. For some of us, it's just part of what we log, and it's no big deal. For others, having to knock out five and a half miles every day taught them something about themselves. You know, the mileage doesn't care if it's hot or rainy, or if you get sick, or if you hurt your back, the journey grinds on whether you can keep up or not. But eventually, my friends, no matter how long and difficult a journey you have, you will come out the other side enlightened, and I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die, so Ned he laughed so hard it made him cry. Okay, to take you out is track number 15 from Brian Sheff, the rock opera by the Nays called Brian's Dirge. And this one is dedicated to my close friend and running buddy, Frank, the drummer for the Nays, who just got his second hip done last week. Our journey and our adventures are not over. They're not done, my friend. We'll see you at Boston, and enjoy. <laughs>